This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week kicks off a multi-episode series looking at the work of native plant organizations and gardeners on the ground around the country. We start today with Courtney Allen, Director of Public Programs for the Native Plant Trust, formerly known as the New England Wildflower Society, serving most directly the native plants and native plant enthusiasts of the New England region. A landscape historian and preservationist by training, Courtney brings her skills to bear on how we know, value, and relate to the native plants of our areas in order to be more considered and intentional about why and how we conserve plants and their associated landscapes going forward. She joins us today to share more on her plant life journey and reading our surrounding landscapes as intersections of the conceptual and the literal in our individual and communal lives. Courtney has worked in public engagement around art and horticulture throughout her career and at such diverse organizations as the Huntington Botanical Garden in Southern California and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. She joins us today from the PRX Podcast Garage Studios in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. So I want to get started with you describing for listeners what you actually do every day. What what does your work involve in relationship to plants and, and plant education, Courtney, on both a personal and a professional level? Well, on a personal level, in my day-to-day life, I love to spend as much time outdoors as possible. I live in an area of Massachusetts that has a lot of conserved land, so I love to explore. I have native plant garden that I cultivate in my backyard with mountain mint, cardinal flowers, Mm. asters. And I believe that my my closeness to plants in my day-to-day life, in my personal life, really inspires many of the questions I research for my work. And my work does center around plant education and landscape interpretation. And as the director of public programs for Native Plant Trust, what I do is I craft a vision for connecting people with plants. And this includes designing learning models and initiatives on a regional scale. Um, It also includes working to broaden the scope of our program topics and to improve the quality of our instruction. And finally, it includes creating interpretation for the Botanic Garden. Essentially, what I do is I I keep a pulse on the most relevant and timely questions in the plant field, and I try to offer opportunities for people to explore those ideas. My work with Native Plant Trust especially gives me the opportunity to address some of those big picture questions and also to work for something that I really value. Yeah, Mm -hmm. which is always a wonderful thing to be able to do, right? Absolutely. So... Listeners will remember, I think, that we had a wonderful episode last summer of 2018 with two of the horticulturalists there at what was at that time the New England Wildflower Society. They were talking to us about a fantastic initiative called Pollinate New England, and they were talking about their wonderful new book of uh, Native Plants for Gardens in the Northeast. You referenced here the Botanic Garden, um, which I think Mm -hmm. is called Garden in the Woods. Correct. Um, They talked quite a bit about both the garden, the outreach initiative of Pollinate New England, and the new book. Since then, 
the name has changed for the New England Wildflower Society, one of the oldest sort of native plant-related societies in our country. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that name change, and then I'll ask you a little bit more about, you know, what kinds of programs you're you're working with now, Courtney. Of course. Uh, as you said, Native Plant Trust, uh, previously New England Wildflower Society, is the country's first plant conservation organization. It's also the only one solely focused on New England's native plants. We were founded in 1900 as the Society for the Protection of Native Plants. We've had several names since then, most recently New England Wildflower Society. But the new name, which was voted by our board at the end of 2018, and which we rolled out this past uh, spring, more clearly articulates our mission to conserve and promote the region's native plants. And we also find that it's a nod to our organization's roots as well. And refresh for us the the mission and kind of goals of the program, and have those remained the same? Have they broadened and deepened in any way with this name change? Does this name change reflect a growing concern about native plants writ large across our globe, as opposed to just the parameters of the region that it serves most directly? Mm-hmm. Our mission is the same, although we have changed our name to reflect it more accurately. We do work primarily in New England um, and in the eco-regions that, uh, that cover part of the geographic region of New England. But we certainly try to create models of, um, of learning and conservation that can be used all over the globe. And we are part of um, various organizations that, um, that talk about that on a global level. So for instance, um, the Botanic Garden Conservation International, we recently received a, um, one of the first awards for advanced work in conservation, and that is um, an international organization. So we, we do look to a global perspective as well. That is a great accomplishment to receive that award from that international group, which is which is well known and doing wonderful work, mm-hmm. uh, integrating and connecting a lot of these gardens and societies around the world. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Um, let's go back to you personally a little bit and mm-hmm. take us back to your earliest influences and the the people and places and plants that grew you into a person that knew you wanted to kind of bring this side of yourself to to your work in the world, Courtney. Of course. Thank you. Yes, I think a lot of different things go into cultivating a person, right? <laughs> right. Um, so my, my earliest interests in landscape, I think it came from a combination of different factors and experiences. Uh, first, I, I was actually a Girl Scout throughout my school years, and that involved a lot of time outdoors in New Jersey parklands. I grew up in New Jersey, and I learned to observe my surroundings that way, to appreciate plant life, and to look for signs of influence. Had someone been there before me, and how could I mm. tell? Mm. Uh, another factor was travel. Growing up, my family loved to explore new places. Once we even took a, a cross-country road trip to Alaska, from New Jersey to Alaska, um, and the landscape wow. and, and culture, yes, of, of the Inside Passage really captured me there. And it could just be you know, exploration down the street or on a different continent, but there was always curiosity and adventure. We were trying to see new things and also trying to see familiar things in new ways. 
And finally, I grew up near New York City, so I spent a good deal of time in museums as a child as well. And those collections taught me to ask vital questions. What do we conserve and why? How do we create and agree on stories about places or objects? And these questions are just as relevant to botanical collections, I find, as they are to art or historical collections. Mm -hmm. So I, I took great joy in the outdoors and in travel and museums, and I could pinpoint from an early age that I was passionate about outdoor places and about their history. It just, it took me a while to realize that I could weave all those pieces together into a career. What that that question you posed of what do we conserve and why is mm -hmm. still sort of sitting in my head as just such an important question for all of us to ask on on a daily basis. And mm -hmm. I love the fact that you did figure out relatively early, it seems to me, um, how to weave these things together and then bring them to bear in a tangible and responsive way to the world around you. So w first of all, were there adults in your life? Were your parents gardeners? Were they outdoor people? Like were was gardening and, and that part of your family ethos? To be truthful, no. Um, that was something that I came to on my own. My um, my family, on the whole, appreciates the, the outdoors, um, but is not quite as outdoorsy as I am. Right. Um, so I, uh, some of it was solo exploration as well, although I, I certainly think that was encouraged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I love to ask that question because it seems maybe like a, a rhetorical question or a repetitive question for me to ask every interviewee, but I love when I get an answer that is no. My, mm -hmm. The people around me weren't necessarily plants people, and I still found my way here because not all gardeners are grown from small childhood and not all plants people are reared at the the knees of elder family members. And you can still find your way there. And I think that's a really hopeful model. Um, okay, so you're, you're a Girl Scout in New Jersey, and you're visiting museums in New York. Take us from there. How, how do you get to uh, some of these fabulous jobs that, I mean, and I only <laughs> mentioned a couple of them, but, uh, you know, you're at the Huntington, you're at the Metropolitan Museum, you're at Falling Water and a, a couple of other just really interesting locations, Courtney. Thank you. Uh, it's true. I When I was considering institutes of higher learning as a teenager, I really fell in love with Smith College. And one of the reasons was the campus. At the time, I knew very little of landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted or of the diverse native flora of New England or the significance <laughs> of botanic gardens. But even though I could not name those specific reasons, I recognized that there were things that made that site very special, and I wanted to spend more time discovering why. And once I entered Smith College, I learned there was this thing called Landscape Studies Program. It was only a few years old at that point. Um, but it was the first one of its kind at a liberal arts college. Rather than approaching specifically through a landscape architecture lens, it was a very highly dis interdisciplinary approach. So um, the students studied botany and horticulture, but also history, literature, art, sociology. And as a generalist, I loved this. I, I found that it encouraged me to make connections when I studied place, connections that other people did not necessarily think to look for. I, I had a fabulous advisor. Her name was Professor Nina Antonetti, and she was a role model for me in this kind of thinking. 
She inspired me to pursue a career in reading landscapes and sharing with others how to do the same. I was able to practice that approach during undergraduate through some of the wonderful uh, jobs you mentioned. Some of them were summer jobs. I created and led landscape tours at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Cloisters, focusing on medieval gardens because I, um, I was also a medievalist in college as well. And I also created and led landscape tours for Grey Towers in the Poconos, which is the estate of Gifford Pinchot, the founder of the Forest Service. So from undergraduate, after Smith, my journey took me to Philadelphia, where I studied historic preservation at University of Pennsylvania, again with a fantastic mentor, a leader in interdisciplinary thinking. His name is Professor Randall Mason. There was a cohort of 30 in the graduate program for historic preservation, but I believe that only three of us were specializing in landscape. Um, it's it's a, pretty much a niche area. <laughs> But I studied and worked primarily at a site in West Philadelphia named the Woodlands. And the Woodlands is a 42-acre landscape and National Historic Landmark. It was the country estate of William Hamilton, who was an 18th century gentleman botanist um, who introduced several plants to America, the Americas, um, including ones that we don't necessarily like, like the Norway maple. Um, <laughs> and in fact, the site of the Woodlands was the inspiration for Elizabeth Gilbert's book called The Signature of All Things. Um, and I have the, had the privilege of, of giving her her first tour at the site, which was very exciting. But in the mid-19th century, the former estate was adapted to become a cemetery. And today it's still an active cemetery, but also a significant neighborhood green space. So my work there and what I learned there um, was not only things like tree inventory, but also an examination of how private estates become public landscapes. And during my graduate work, I also had the opportunity to work for the curatorial department at Falling Water, which is Frank Lloyd Wright's most famous residential design. And actually, just this past week, it was put on the UNESCO World Heritage List. Wow. And yeah, very exciting. Um, yeah. We've been working on it for many years, so I'm, I'm pleased to see that that finally came through. Um, but while I was there, I was enveloped by organic architecture, and it allowed me to study further how humans design landscape and interact with plant life and with natural elements. So that took me through my graduate years. Uh, and so wait, mm -hmm. I'm going to stop you for just a of second. Course. So mm -hmm. what year did you graduate from Smith and what year did you finish up at uh, Penn? I finished at Smith in 2009 and I graduated Penn in 2012. Okay, keep going. So you, you finished that graduate work at some really great and influential places, and it sounds like wonderful mentors, which just can't be over-appreciated or <laughs> stated. And you go where? After finishing my graduate work, I took a position at a place called Grounds for Sculpture near Princeton, New Jersey. It's consistently voted the best museum in the state. It features world-renowned sculptors. It's a 42-acre landscape that includes galleries, gardens, and an artist workshop. It's situated on the former state fairgrounds. And there I spent time considering how humans insert objects into the landscape and how they try to create relationships between different components of the landscape. And from there, I was offered a position at the Huntington Library Art Collections and Botanical Gardens in Southern California as the head of gardens education. Wow. And, <laughs> and uh, it was- That's a, a big a, move, it, Courtney. It was, it was a big yeah. move. Um, <laughs> And the, the Huntington is a, a major research institution, also a traveler attraction, and it has plants from all over the world on 120 acres. My work there included 
adult and school programs, um, garden interpretation, teacher and docent development, many different things. But ultimately, I found that it was a fantastic way to explore how plants and landscapes connect us on a global level. Uh, my, my daily work was to introduce visitors to completely unfamiliar plants that they never knew existed, and we would feed off of each other's excitement. And actually, I think my, my personal favorite at the Huntington was the Australian garden because it offered an opportunity to illuminate how and why plants from the opposite side of the world came to be so popular in Southern California and how the similar climates encouraged the relocated plants to thrive. Um, but as, as you said, Jennifer, it was a very big move. And as much as I loved the Huntington, relocating to California was really difficult on a, on a personal level because at that point, I had lived in many places, but only in the northeastern U.S. And the Mediterranean and desert climates of Southern California were very different. And it illuminated for me how intensely landscapes can reflect us and also how landscapes can influence the ways we perceive and approach the world. Um, a few months after moving to California, I went hiking in Joshua Tree National Park for the first time. And I was tracing the trail that the 19th century miners had created. And the trail was completely exposed and desolate, really minimal flora. And the sun was beating down. And then suddenly, in the midst of all of the dust, there was this one delicate little yellow flower. And it was so poignant to witness this single plant trying to make a place for itself in this inhospitable environment. And I realized from that how much I missed being surrounded by trees and how, for me, woodlands felt like a protected, plentiful landscape. And I don't think that I would have recognized it in the same way without having a contrast. Um, so ultimately, I, I missed being surrounded by the woodlands and the water, and I opened myself to possibilities back in the Northeast. I really wanted to work for an organization that had multiple sites, a more naturalistic kind of feel, um, regional impact, and Native Plant Trust was exactly the right fit. So I accepted the offer to be director of public programs there. And now every day I have the opportunity to connect visitors and adult students with the most impressive native plants in New England and with the topics that support their conservation. And, and on, on a personal level, I try to take a walk every day through uh, garden in the woods and teach myself three new plants, which was a practice I started at the Huntington. But I love that there's always more to learn and more to share. Always more to learn. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell. And this week, we're speaking with Courtney Allen, Director of Public Programming at the Native Plant Trust, focused on the native plants of New England and working on behalf of native plants worldwide. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Hey now, I am sure your ears perked up at this too. But Courtney's many years and long practice of learning three new plants a day kind of rocked me. I know a lot of plants, but I could easily set myself a goal of learning three new ones each day and still have a hard time learning all of my California native plants in the next decade. But I love this concept because looking to learn a new plant, 
their face, their seasonal garb and growth, their places, their friends. This is an unequivocal sign of caring, of respecting, of valuing. And to give your time to such a task, even if it was one new plant learned well each week, this, my plant-loving friends, would be time well spent in our lives and for all the lives around us. Once we learn and know another life in such personal detail, there's no telling what we'll do on their behalf. Okay, now back to our conversation with Courtney Allen on all that we learn when we learn to really see and read a landscape. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Welcome back to our conversation with Courtney Allen, a landscape historian and preservationist, bringing her interpretive skills to bear on understanding more fully our relationships to our landscapes and putting that knowledge to work for the benefit of conserving and supporting those very landscapes and their plants. When we left the conversation, Courtney shared with us her own sense of home in a landscape, and we're back now to consider some of the nuanced insights offered to us in how we see or don't see a landscape. That is such a great story of having, you know, of this relocating yourself to Mm. uh, California and Southern California, most specifically, and uh, realizing what home really felt like for you. And that sense of homesickness makes us, mm, so I I hope at its best, makes us more aware of what we do value and appreciate. And so how long were you in total in uh, Pasadena in the LA Mm. area? I was there for three and a half years, and yeah. I think that it's absolutely true what you're saying, that um, when we think of, of home, we might think of the, um, the building and the interior and the mm-hmm. people, and all of those things can be important, but so rarely do we think about the landscape and how, um, how attached we can be to landscape. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I come myself from a bi-coastal family, and I was born and Mm. raised in Colorado, and I have a lot of family in um, just outside of Boston and in New York. Uh, But then I have lived in California for for 12 years and, as I say, was born and raised in sort of high altitude in Colorado. and. So I am fairly accustomed to that back and forth and the the shift in mood and feel and exposure. And I remember going with a partner from Colorado to the Northeast to be for some amount of time. And he was so claustrophobic in the Mm. trees. He's like, I can't, you can't get above tree level here. What is wrong? Like you can never see the horizon unless you're at the ocean. And um, that awareness of how the landscape affects us, I think, is a really, it's a gift for someone to be made aware of. If if it doesn't become articulated in their own minds, mm-hmm. to have someone point it out to you, I think, makes a big difference to how you view your, your own surroundings. And there's so much to follow up on in your story there, Courtney, but I, I want to <laughs> follow up on this concept that you referred to throughout this work that you've been doing, these, mm-hmm. you know, different 
research journeys into medieval gardens, into, you know, the the architectural interface or sculptural interface with the landscape and how we humans, you know, insert ourselves into a landscape and then try and make it work. But how that all comes together in your personal interest and viewpoint that you refer to it as reading a landscape. Now, in the introduction, I, I, I referenced the, con, the idea that for you and in your work, the landscape is both conceptual and literal, and that it's an important intersection for you to be able to see and think about. Reading a landscape comes to play here because that's being able to read a landscape in, at different levels is is how you become aware of it being conceptual or literal. Talk to listeners and me about what what this means and and how this is played out and why this is important to you. Well, first of all, I have to say that I think that our lives are all about reading landscape. It's the the mm-hmm. lens through which I walk through the world. Um, whether we recognize it or not, landscape can include, as you say, plants, but it's not exclusively about plants. A landscape is a space that has been made into a place that has human influence on it. And while we may consciously only think of highly cultivated green areas as landscapes, the truth is that the whole world is landscape. We may think of Arctic as nature because humans have not intentionally cultivated there. But in terms of the conceptual, we still have a human perspective on what the Arctic is and what it means. We still have effect on it by our industrial actions creating climate change. So therefore, even a space that we have not, in a literal sense, touched becomes a a landscape. Um, And to read the landscape means, for me, to notice and interpret clues that indicate how the space became a place. So for example, I teach a program through my work on tracing landscape history. The program takes place in Cambridge, but it cultivates skills that can be applied to any landscape. And in that program, I engage students with the landscape through a series of questions. So why might this tree have been planted here? Why might they have chosen this particular species? What can the size and health of the tree tell us about the tree's life and about changes in this place? How does it record those changes? How does the tree interact with its environment and with other trees? And what might all of these clues tell us about this landscape's history? Um, So it is a a multi-step process, and it can be really challenging to learn to read the landscape. But once you make an intention to do so, it becomes natural, and you can't not notice and interpret clues. And in terms of, of why I do it, of why I read the landscape or why I find it interesting. Um, Reading the landscape intrigues me for several reasons. Uh, First, because it insists that we become aware of our senses and of our experience in a place. It also insists that we become comfortable with place as something that constantly changes, and that is very difficult for people to accept. And then it insists that we take on accountability for human influence on a place. All of these are very difficult things for people to accept, but they are critical steps to prepare to cultivate place. I also find that reading the landscape fascinates me because different people 
notice different clues. The Tracing Landscape History program I mentioned, every time that I do it, it's different because people have different interpretations of the evidence. And reading the landscape, therefore, can reveal people's priorities or their frames of reference or their memories. Uh, so it can be very telling, not just of the landscape and not just of the plants, but also of the people who are observing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's there's nothing like reading a landscape with a diverse group of people to make you acutely aware of your own biases and blind spots. I mean, by nothing more than way of example, you standing on the trail in Joshua Tree under a big open sky and full sun and this little yellow flower and, you know, the history of the miners walking that trail and creating it and the the tourists and students and adventure seekers walking it now. And to one person, it feels inhospitable. And to another little yellow flower, it feels like just the right place without much competition. And, you know, the indigenous communities of that place will have a whole different reading of what that landscape means and looks like and feels like and what the changes over time have meant and feel like. And that second and third step that you mentioned in why it's critically important and why we hope, I think, more people become um, conversant and skilled at this is that idea of seeing change for what it is and then being able to take some accountability for it. And, you know, for, for me in my place where native plants are hugely important and under pressure and the diversity of California is pretty epic, as is the the floral diversity of the New England region. All of a sudden, when you look at this this idea of change and accountability hand in hand, it looks very different, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think that that's part of what landscape history or landscape history lens can teach us about cultivating place. Uh, It can really guide and inform us when thinking about native plants, as you say. Um, For instance, landscape history can not only support us in discovering what plants have been present in landscapes over time, but can also help us to deduce why the plant populations have changed. Uh, A great example that, that comes to mind for me is that author Henry David Thoreau recorded in his journals about the bloom times of different native plants around Walden Pond. And we can now look through those journals of the bloom times and see that some species have adapted to climate change over the past 150 years and bloom up to three weeks earlier, whereas other species have not adapted. And we can also tell from the records that um, the 27% of the plant species that existed then are now extinct and another 36% are endangered. So looking to landscape history can help us to trace the patterns of these native plants. And that's really critical to help us plan what and how to conserve. It's funny because I keep visualizing what you're doing as almost like a human dendrology, like mm-hmm. looking at the, the you know, the cores uh, or the, the circles, taking a core sample of a tree 
and seeing the different changes over time and what those tell us in a tree ring in terms of drought years and fire and heat and great rainfall. And that is just another version of, of that and what we learn from it. Absolutely. I, that's a fantastic phrase. I love that. I'm, I'm going to take human dendrology with me. <laughs> <laughs> Courtney Allen is a landscape historian and gardener, a scholar and an educator who's fascinated by all the levels of information available to us in being more attuned to the information embodied in the landscapes that surround us. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud here, I am thinking again and more about Courtney's learning new plants practice. And should we start a new plant of the day, week, or month club? Maybe other people already do this. Maybe no matter where we live or how many plants we set ourselves to learn, we'd update each other on one plant we learned this month and what we learned about them. I'm kind of liking this idea. Where would we start? Hmm, how would we start? Maybe we'd each post our newly learned plant on the first day of each month and write up our thoughts and tag the post with my plant of the month CP. What do you think? Could I do this for a full 12 months with presence and intention? I think I could. Could you? I know, I know, I throw this kind of thing out there just about every week to see what resonates, to honor my own curiosity and maybe pique yours too. But if you'd be interested in this plant of the month CP idea, let me know. Because of course, it's like any new discipline and habit. It sticks better and is way more fun in community with others. I'd happily brainstorm this with any of you. Send me a note at cultivatingplace at gmail.com or leave a comment at Cultivating Place on Instagram. Or heck, just do it today, which is the 1st of August, or someday this week, retroactively for the 1st of August. Okay, now back to our conversation with Courtney, Director of Public Programs for the Native Plant Trust based in New England, and direct inspiration behind this new idea. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. When we left off in our conversation with Courtney Allen, we were discussing the intricacies and treasures available in learning to read a landscape and to see familiar things with new eyes. We're back now to hear how these skills and the teaching and learning of them are integral to the programs Courtney develops and leads for the Native Plant Trust. I think I read on the the website that there are something like 200 different public programs that the Native Plant Trust is involved in and, and working on. You know, I, we talked about three of them, the, the Garden in the Woods in terms of a visitor's display garden to, vi- you know, to visit and learn from, and maybe there are programs there, and the Pollinate New England um, initiative of last year. What are the public programs that immediately come to mind for you that are kind of highlights for your work currently? And and how are they kind of impacted or, or affected to some extent by your particular lens, you know, in this 
first two years or so of your work there? Mm-hmm. We do about 200 programs a year through Native Plant Trust, as you mentioned, and they are, well, while many of them are um, near or at Garden in the Woods in Framingham, Massachusetts, we do have them all throughout New England. Uh, the main areas uh, are botany and conservation and landscape, uh, horticulture and design. Some of the ways that I've brought my lens into the programming is to really try and look at things through a more interdisciplinary way. So incorporating more natural history into some Mm -hmm. of the conservation programs, and then also starting a new series called New Takes on Historic Landscapes. Which um, in which we partner with uh, different sites, most of which are historic New England sites, and take a look at the um, the landscape design principles of the past and how those can be adapted now in a more sustainable way um, for current um, gardeners who are looking to be able to use native plants. So that that's one of the ways that I have brought my lens to uh, to the programming. Can you give us a specific example of one of those sites and one of those programs? Absolutely. Um, One of the ones that we have coming up in August is at Barrett House in New Ipswich, New Hampshire. Uh, That's a historic New England site. We also have one coming up in October at the Lyman Estate and Greenhouses in Waltham, Massachusetts, another historic New England site. Give us a sort of feel for, you know, what what the program looks like and what an attendee would expect at either Lyman House or um, the first one you mentioned, which mm-hmm. now went out of my head. Right. Uh, generally, for these new takes on historic landscapes programs, it's about three hours long. And for the first hour, it's doing a, a reading of the landscape from a historical context, In the second hour, it's more of um, talking about what kind of plants or uh, gardening approaches would be appropriate in a sustainable way, in a contemporary way of thinking. And then the third is putting the two of them together so that um, people have the opportunity to consider how they might apply those designs to their own spaces and make those into places. So I'm envisioning here, you know, let's just say I'm in Concord, Massachusetts, and I go to, I don't know, the old North Bridge, and I walk around it, and I, so I'm, I'm assuming this is a group of adults, Correct. sort of maybe, maybe late teens up until any age, and you are... You are trying to identify the trees that are there. You're trying to identify the the plants or trees that might have always been there and then those that might have been introduced purposefully and then those that might have been introduced inadvertently. And then you sort of talk about how that works. Is that – am I close? That's That's a piece of it, yes. Some of it definitely has to do with specific plants and what – Alter, you know, current alternatives could be for those plants so that it's not something invasive or non-native, but something native instead. Um, there's also a component of looking at the design. Um, for instance, 
if the um, the designer of that space was someone of the Wild Garden movement, for instance, which uh-huh, uh, yeah. was the the des- designer for um, for Garden in the Woods. That was the influence for there. Thinking about past um, landscape architecture styles as well, and how that influenced um, influenced the space, and what an adaptation of that would look like now, and what would be different. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so when people are trying to take this information and then put it to use in their own home gardens. What does that what does that look like? Can you give me an example of that whether it's maybe your own garden or someone else that you know that has taken one of these programs and then acted on it in their own environment? Mhm. I think that it looks different for different people depending on how um how tidy they want their idea of native plants to be. <laughs> Um, what I will say is that one of the most popular programs that we we have now, one of the most popular um, habitats and and styles, so to speak, is um, is cultivating meadows. And um, that's a little bit of what I do in my with my personal gardening, as well as I think um, what many of the historic landscapes are trying to do now um, in some way, it's um, it's a little bit segregated, as in like this one area can be the meadow, and then we'll have the native plants, and they'll be over there. Um, but there's also an opportunity to incorporate them into existing design in other ways as well. And I think that um, that is reflected in people's personal gardening style as well. Some people may replace the um, the non-native plantings that they have. Um, with very manicured native plants, whereas others um, may create a separate special place for um, experimenting with native plants. Mm -hmm. And I love how it's, I mean, I'm I'm imagining if, if I were present and able to take one of these, how it would, it would teach you plants along the way both what is native and what is non-native and, you know, the difference between a perennial and a shrub and a vine and a tree and um, some basic things like this, while it's also asking you to look at it in a much more layered and complex way. So you get kind of two or three different levels of information and uh, engagement all at the same time, which I think most of us would agree is a much, much more interactive and um, energizing way to learn about these things. Thank you. Yes, that's definitely part of what I've been trying to do in my position as director of public programs at Native Plant Trust over the past year and a half is to um, construct programs where both the format as well as the approaches are really conducive to a more um, to a more interactive and engaging. Uh, style for the students. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you can show me that's a copper beach, but if you say this is a copper beach and at that size it's probably this old and it's next to this house because this was an important, you know, introduction in this year, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you've learned it's a copper beach and you've learned to think about it in context exactly. and they both stick better. Absolutely. Yeah. Context is, is really critical and not... Um, shared enough, I think, or mm-hmm. not thought about mm-hmm. enough, which is part of the 
part of the importance of of reading landscape. I think I think that it's um, it's important for gardeners and for plants people to read the landscape because, I mean, for one thing, it reminds us that we're only you know, one moment in the life cycle of a place um, <laughs> that we are contributing, but that there are many factors that um, that shape whether plants and places thrive, and that those factors started long before us. Um, I think it also reminds us that a place is made collectively, um, not by any single individual. And so it makes us more aware of our, our connections with places and with plants, but also with communities. And both of those things, I hope, I, I have experienced, mm-hmm. help us overcome our own hubris. And anything that allows that is a good thing. Absolutely. So we've, we've kind of touched on how all of this deeper level of looking and learning might inform more people about how to be engaged and accountable in our current climate crisis um, and cultural moment in time. When you, when you think about your work both philosophically and horticulturally, what are what are you finding are some of the greatest obstacles you're you're running into in people getting this with mm-hmm. you? I think that the greatest obstacle to to plant conservation is the tendency to as as we said to not look at context, so to look at each issue as an individual problem to solve. Um, we talk about what we can do um, in almost an additive way instead of looking at the root of problems. So what structures and behaviors we need to change within ourselves to then affect change in the landscape. Um, For example, shifting our ideas of beauty to something less manicured or not using pesticides or accepting that plants might not grow quote unquote perfectly, but um, however they grow is right for them. And I also think that the problem is compounded by the prevalence of, of misinformation um, which Native Plant Trust actively tries to combat. But I, I do think that's the greatest obstacle is to look at each of the issues as separate problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the flip side of that, what what are some of your greatest joys? How How do you personally measure success for what you and the Native Plant Trust are doing, Courtney? And if there are anecdotes you have to illustrate this, that would be great. My, my greatest joy in my work is when I witness other people's worlds opening. Uh, so especially when someone has no knowledge or any particular interest in a landscape and comes to one of our programs or comes to Garden in the Woods or one of other, our other sites and ends up connecting with it and becoming exciting about, excited about it and wants to go and share about why it's special to them. To me, those, those moments feel like success. And those are the, like, the individual stories or the anecdotal pieces, but I also try to, to think in, in replicable models, I say. Um, so for, for instance, at, um, at this year's American Public Gardens Association, I 
presented at the conference, I was also named as this year's um, Kittleman Scholar, which is an award given to a, a mid-career leader. But I presented two sessions. One was on regional engagement models for botanical education, and one was on using plant collections to convey core ideas of particular landscapes. So to me, success would look like other landscape historians and landscape educators taking those ideas to their own spaces, replicating them, and having those work no matter where it was. To me, that would be um, a huge indicator of success. Well, first of all, let's just take a pause here to say well done you on that <laughs> award at the APGA uh, Thrive Conference this year. That is a huge accomplishment, and I am very proud on your behalf. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and those sound like fantastic presentations, and I do hope to see them replicated uh, across uh, other public garden and public interpretive uh, locations and organizations. So is that the kind of thing that other, that listeners could maybe access uh, your presentation or some of the key points to them online through the Native Plant Trust or through you, Courtney? Absolutely. They could contact me directly. I believe that they will, that all of the presentations will also be posted on the American Public Gardens Association website and made available um, to anyone. I don't believe that it's any kind of password protected. Um, so those will be there as well for access. Great. Is there anything, we're, we're drawing quickly to a close mm -hmm. here. Is there anything you would like to add as, a, you know, you've already indicated a, a mid-career female leader in this space and engaged both at the dirt ground level and the sort of more heady philosophical level, the importance and hope you have for this work. Is there anything you'd like to add? A couple of things. Um, in terms of the the hope I have for this work, I have to say that for me, the highest form of of landscape preservation and education is really healing um, for both for land and for people. And that can be in the form of successional plant communities or people reclaiming landscapes of their heritage, environmental justice work, therapeutic horticulture, really anything that makes us more aware of and connected to places and plants. So that would be my greatest hope in this work. And then I think that so a summary of... Um, of what I think on the topic of landscape history really is that it can it can give us insight into plants, but it also gives us insight into people, as I mentioned, um, by observing how we cultivate place, we can see what we choose to cultivate within ourselves and why. And once we learn to do that and reflect on it regularly, we can show others how to do the same. And I believe that that's uh, how we're going to bring greater awareness to the importance of plants is through those relationships and those connections. I completely agree. <laughs> Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been, it's been wonderful speaking with you. It's been wonderful speaking with you as well, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. Courtney Allen is the Director of Public Programs for the Native Plant Trust, 
formerly known as the New England Wildflower Society, serving most directly the New England region of the United States. A landscape historian and preservationist by training, Courtney brings her skills to bear on how we know, value, and relate to the native plants of our areas in order to be more considered and intentional about why and how we conserve plants and their associated landscapes going forward. For more information on Courtney and her work, as well as all the programs of the Native Plant Trust, make sure to visit their website or get on their mailing list, all of which you can find at nativeplanttrust.org. Join us again next week as the conversations and this multi-episode series continues, looking at a variety of native plant organizations and gardeners around the country. We'll be joined next by David Newsom, home gardener in Southern California and founder of the Wild Yards Project, working to inspire and help realize the transformation of backyards to native habitat wherever you live through sharing the stories of everyday wild yards. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from Courtney Allen's life and work, including a link to the replicable educational models presentation she gave at the recent APGA conference, go to this week's episode notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. And while you're there, please consider making a donation in support of the program through the support link at the upper right-hand corner of every page on the website. And thank you to all of you whose recurring monthly donations of anywhere from $10 to $100 make the valuable work of cultivating place possible. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.